when we made that drive home, we got we got home, we got in the driveway, and when we were in the driveway, I was like, I was crying because it was a realization that at that point, like I didn't accomplish what I wanted to accomplish in those six weeks where I thought I was just gonna, I was gonna walk out. Hello there, how are you all doing? Have you been having a good week? I've been working hard on the storyline for this film I've been making out in Texas. I got really deep into Bitcoin mining, how the energy sector works. I'm really excited to get this film out for you. Just a big thanks to my director, Neil Berkeley, and also my DP, Kurt. We will work very hard on this, but lots of work to do. Hopefully going to have this out for you in the next about six weeks. We're targeting the 30th of March. Anyway, welcome to the What Bitcoin Did podcast, which is brought to you by Gemini, the only place I'm using for buying Bitcoin. Today on the show, I've got Kale Hyder. Now, this is a totally different show from normal. I saw Kale's story on Twitter and it kind of blew my mind. Uh, Kale is a Bitcoiner, but his story is about when he woke up one morning with tingling hands and 24 hours later, he couldn't move anything from the neck down. His whole tweet thread about this, which we will include in the show notes, was incredible. And I was like, you know what, you're a Bitcoiner, you know, you're resilient, I want to hear from you, I want to talk to you. And so we flew him out to Nashville and I got his whole story. Now, look, this might not be a Bitcoin story, but whatever, fuck it. Sometimes there are some really cool and inspirational people in Bitcoin that I just want to talk to. And you know what? Kel's pretty cool. He's definitely a Bitcoiner. It was interesting to hear about his Bitcoin story as well. And also interesting to hear about his whole approach to diet in his career. So yeah, not a normal show, but I hope you enjoy this. And listen, if you've got any questions about this or anything else, please do reach out to me. My email address is hello at whatbitcoindid.com. I was trying to figure out the angle here. You know, you saw my thread and then you're like, cool. But I'm trying to figure out, I've been trying to figure out how this fits in with your podcast, especially some of the more recent episodes you've been like, I want to focus on macro a little bit more. And I'm like, okay, well, like I can't, I'm not the best at like the yen, you know? Right. Well, listen, I always have a page of notes, right? Right. Danny, when do I never need my notes? Well, sometimes we'll print you out notes and if you like the interview, you'll read one question and never look at them again. But like there's certain types of interviews where I don't really need notes. Uh, I make a Bitcoin show. Yep. Um, but like I'll, I'll go rogue sometimes. You know, there's shows where we don't talk about Bitcoin. Yep. I mean, you'll know that. Yep. Uh, my most in, my, the ones I enjoy the most are just personal stories, like where someone's got a story to tell me about them and their life. And sometimes, look, I have the luxury. I can bring on who the fuck I want, right? right? Uh, I saw your thread. I was like, whoa. Uh, and then I saw you were a Bitcoin. I was like, well, you're a brother. Yep. Uh, you're in the same world as me. Like, so I reached out. I was like, do you want to come on? Tell me your story. We, we might talk about Bitcoin. We might not talk about Bitcoin. But there's no angle. It's just like, this is interesting. Awesome. I, I wouldn't say I was like, cool. I was like, huh, fucking hell. That's a... I mean, people don't know what the hell we're talking about yet, but like, that's like a, it's a lot, right? Yeah. You've been through a lot and, you know, some people have had a really rough few years, right? Um, and I think by listening to your story, it's going to give perspective on people's lives. Sure. Certainly for mine, if I'm ever moaning about any shit, I'll think <laughs> about when I met Kale. And, and I think most of all is uh, I could, I mean, I don't know what Carol, Caroline will say about this, but I noticed your sense of humor through the thread. Yeah. And you're super positive. 
I was like, I just want to meet this guy. Just see what you've got to say. And we should probably help people out here. They're probably like, okay. who's this guy? What the hell are they going to talk about? Um, do you just want to like t start from the morning you woke up? Sure. Where like things had changed. You just tell your story. Sure. So the summer after my freshman year of high school, I was getting into a lot of lifting and a lot of basketball practice, shooting around on my own. I was really into sports, athletics. And after my freshman year of not really excelling as much as I had wanted to on the basketball court, I focused on that summer as my chance of making the varsity team, right? The, the, the senior team of my high school. I wanted to be the starting guard or, you know, forward on that basketball team. So you're 18? I was 15. Oh, 15. Yeah. Okay. So I wanted to be playing with the 17 and 18 year olds. Okay. I didn't want to play with people my age group. It was kind of an ego thing, right? I wanted to play against the best people in my district and my state. So my way of approaching that was I'm going to put my all into getting stronger because when you're that young, two, three years of strength is a world's a difference because you're going up against six foot five people who are, you know, 220. And I'm 120, you know, 120, 130, six foot at the time, right? They would throw me around. But you also have to be able to score and defend. So I really prioritized my sports that summer. And then, you know, I didn't believe in rest. I didn't believe in recovery. I, I just wanted to go as hard as possible in every single you know opportunity I got at lifting, at basketball, whatever. And that eventually caught up to me. So you know, about three weeks of just intensity. And I was also I'm a cross country. I was a cross country runner as well. So I was adding you know four or five miles onto that you know every day. So one of the mornings I woke up June sixteenth of twenty fifteen. And I had, you know, tingling in my fingers, numbness in my, you know, hands, weakness in my shoulders. I couldn't put my arms above my head. And I was like, okay, that's strange. Maybe I'll take today off, which was, you know, I, I didn't do because I didn't believe in that. My perspective was if I was not working, someone was out there working, outworking me, which was not, you know, a healthy attitude, but I also didn't have really anyone to look up to at that time on my team to tell me, that's not a healthy attitude. We need to rest and recover. So I move through that day. I take the day off. I go to the pediatricians. The pediatrician says, hmm, this is strange, but you know, you're, not, you're not really showing any you know, you know, nerve pinching. We'll get you an X-ray. We'll see if there's anything happening and we'll prescribe ibuprofen, you know, essentially a, a pain medicine. So I go to the X-ray, nothing's on the X-ray. The next morning I wake up, same symptoms. You know, I can't put my arms above my head. My, there's pins and needles in my hands. And I'm frustrated because I was hoping sleep would just take away those symptoms. I move throughout that morning, move throughout that afternoon. I'm laying on the couch watching TV. And then I start to feel, you know, internally anxiety and as if something is really wrong. So I stand up. I'm walking through the house and I feel this really strong sense internally of, of just fear. 
And I call my mom home because I'm starting to lose function in my arms. And, you know, I, I really can't move them at all. I call her home. She worked 15 minutes away. She gets home. By that time, I'm crying. I'm upset. I, I tell her, like, we need to call the therapy office, try to get me in for physical therapy. Maybe they can work something out with my arms. And she calls the therapy office. When she tells me that they're not going to be able to see me until the next morning, I go, you know, really crazy, upset. I'm, I, my mom tells me to sit down on the couch. She's going to massage my shoulders. She's going to put biofreeze to try to, you know, cool me off. And I'm still crying, still shaking. And then, you know, after 10 minutes of that, she's like, all right, let's try to stand up and walk this off. And when she told me to stand up, I could no longer stand. So I'm, I'm sitting on the couch, really not able to move my arms, cannot stand. My mom starts crying, of course, because it's very upsetting for her, not knowing what's happening. She calls my dad home. My dad works 20 minutes away as well. He gets home. By the time he gets home, I'm still in a similar state, a little bit worse. They carry me to the car. So, you know, I got mom and dad on both sides. They're carrying me. They sit me in the front seat and we drive to the local hospital. When we get to the local hospital, you know, they're not really used to this type of, you know, severity. Uh, I'm from a small, smallish town and on the Iowa, Illinois border on the Mississippi, they're not really used to these cases. So the team that comes out to get me is kind of like lackadaisical. They're like, do, to do, to do, you know, like maybe this kid broke a bone. And then my mom's like, you need to come out now. And she like storms past them, gets me a wheelchair, puts me in the wheelchair. The team's just like standing back, you know, cause you know, my mom just, she, she just takes over those situations. And luckily, you know, they, they got me a room, they put me in a bed and luckily there was a physician there who had been from a larger regional hospital and he had seen these cases before. So he knew what needed to be done instantly. And essentially what needed to be done was I need to, needed to be lying flat. I needed a catheter put into my bladder because eventually I would lose all you know, ability to control my bladders and my bowels because paralysis is more than just sensation and, you know, your physical strength. It's also affects internal organs. So they put a catheter in, you know, in my bladder. And as a 15 year old being completely naked on a, you know, on a bed and having three, four people around you, putting IVs in your arms, catheters in your bladder, it was, you know, it was- that a sucks. Bit, it was really, it was intense. Yeah. You know, I, I wasn't really sure what was happening. And at that point, I didn't know what was going to be the severity of this. Was it, was I going to live? You know, was I going to, was this just, was I reaching like a blow off top here, you know? And I would just, you know, eventually settle into a neutral state. I wasn't sure what the end game was at that point. So it was more of like anxiety of like, okay, this is weird, but like, where are we headed? But at that point, you're not diagnosed with anything. No. So they're just trying to make sure all of my vitals are stable. They're trying to make sure that I'm able to, you know, urinate. Essentially, just make sure I'm in a stable place. Okay. Yeah. Then what? So, you know, after, a, you know, a half hour, 45 minutes there of them helping me get stable, they're like, okay, we're at a local hospital. You can be better treated at a larger regional hospital that has more resources 
you know, teams that are trained to, you know, treat this condition. They didn't know what the condition was, but they knew it was some type of neurological condition. They're like, we don't have the capacity here to treat that. So we're going to put you in an ambulance and then we're going to, you know, push you over to the regional hospital three hours away. So I get in the ambulance with my mom. I'm on a stretcher at that point, you know, just arms at my side. At that point, like I have no movement below my shoulders. So all I can do is like sort of look over to my mom with my eyes, but I can't move my arms or my legs. I cannot feel the stretcher underneath my body. It feels like I'm floating in space. It's almost as if you have this, you have this cable and it gets cut and anything above the cable, which would be my head and my neck, everything is fine. Everything below is fair game for the most part. You don't have really anything. So I, I lie there for three hours. And as soon as I get to the regional hospital, they say, we're going to do an MRI so we can have imaging of your brain and your spinal cord. So they want to rule out, you know, maybe there was trauma, maybe my the, you know, all the athletics I was doing, maybe there was some internal trauma or damage that's pressing on my brain or pressing on my spinal cord that they'll need to do surgery on, right? They were trying to rule out, do we need to do surgical operations right now? Or is this just a, an internal, you know, maybe a stroke, maybe a autoimmune condition that we can treat with drugs, pharmaceuticals, they were trying to rule out surgery first. So I get in the MRI machine and it was a, it was a three or four hour MRI because you have to get all of your brain imaged and then each segment of your spinal cord, there's four segments. So they do each scanning of the cord with and without contrast. And contrast is a way that they can see, you know, different agents within the body that, you know, may or may not help them make a diagnosis, right? So I'm, I'm in there and growing up, you know, my, my mom's Catholic. I was a Christmas Catholic, right? So I went to church on Christmas. I did go to a Catholic school, you know, K through 12. So I did have religion class and we did go to church sometimes with school, but that was the first time where I was unsure if I was going to pull through because I, I wasn't, no one had told me what was happening because no one knew what was happening. So I wasn't sure if, you know, at any point my vitals could go crazy. I would no longer be able to breathe, you know, because they were very concerned that if the paralysis kept moving upward, as, as the paralysis moves upward toward the brain, the closer it gets to the brain, there's an area called the brain stem. The brainstem is responsible for your breathing. So if the paralysis kept moving upward toward the brainstem and affected the brainstem, I would no longer be able to breathe. So they wanted to make sure that was not happening and they were watching me really closely. So while I'm in the MRI machine, I had memorized the rosary growing up, right? I knew all the prayers and I just kept saying the prayers because I wasn't sure what was gonna happen. And I was like, you know, if I die, you know, at least I, you know, atoned for my sins or whatever, right? I was, I was really grasping at anything at that point. So we make it out of the MRI and it's like two or three in the morning at that point. And the doctor's like, just go to bed, right? We'll, we'll look at the scans while you're asleep and we will let you know what we think in the morning. And 
I was wearing contacts at the time. I had no way, obviously, of taking out my contacts. So my cousin and my mom were like helping me take out my contacts. And it was this kind of whole, like very, um, I guess, just dramatic scene because they're trying to care for me. I can't care for myself. And as a young man, you want to be independent. You want to care for yourself. And now you have your mom, you know, right there. So it's a really big, really big change at that point. Wow. Had you been in an MRI machine before? Not, not until then, no. Yeah, I've been in one. Four hours feels a long time because they're claustrophobic. They're claustrophobic. Yeah, the, the, the whatever, the tube yeah. is right in front of your face and it's, it's drilling noises, you know. Did you sleep in it? Because I slept in mine. I was in there for 15 minutes. I think I slept for 10. <laughs> I, I've, I've slept in MRIs since then, but that very first time, I was just like, I, I, did, I was too worked up at that point to even have been able to sleep. I mean, your mom sounds... Like a badass at the moment. She's a badass. Yeah. Um, yeah. We'll come back to mom. Okay. So do you sleep okay that night? I did. I mean, it was only four hours-ish because by the time the doctors came around for morning rounds, it was 6 a.m. So they came in and they did their best to walk me through it. And at that point, the only thing I, I cared about was being able to play basketball again, right? Basketball, athletics was my identity. I was like, I can handle anything you throw at me just as long as I can play, you know, by September, right? Because okay. I didn't grasp the severity of the situation. Yeah. You know, I uh, obviously I was like, okay, I don't really know what's happening here. Maybe this is the end, but like, you know, there's probably treatment here. So, you know, right. three, four months of some physical therapy and I'll be ready to go for the season. It sounds like you were flipping between this is either super bad or like we can fix this. Yeah, this is... This is super bad, but like you can fix this, right? Yeah, yeah. So okay. Um, so they come in and they give an initial diagnosis of transverse myelitis. So transverse just means across, and my, myelitis is like of inflammation. So essentially, we have a. It, it was a diagnosis of the spinal cord, a cross section of the spinal cord that had inflammation. So it was a really like generic diagnosis that looking back and after being in it for several years and meeting other people, most doctors just label it, you know, any inflammation of the spinal cord, transverse myelitis, because they don't really know what's happening. They don't know a cause. They, they just, they're like, we see some inflammation there. That inflammation has, you know, is leading to scarring or the scarring is already there. That scarring, when you scar nerves, it essentially, you know, kills them. So we have inflammation around the spinal cord. We have scarring of the spinal cord. We don't know why. And, and I, I still asked, I was like, am I going to be able to, you know, play basketball? And, you know, at that point, he, the doctor was like, well, this is going to be a little, you know, more intense than just a broken bone, right? This is going to be a longer process. We don't have any drugs or pharmaceuticals to just wipe this out completely. Like you can't just get a, a Pfizer drug for five weeks and then you can walk out of the hospital. Luckily you don't need surgery, so we don't need to operate on you. There was no like blunt force to my brain or my spinal cord. Um, but all we have is we wanna clear up that inflammation. So we'll do some anti-inflammatory steroids because at that point, they didn't know 
when you first have these injuries, they don't know if the la- the you know the lack of function below that injury line is due to the injury itself or the second hand response of inflammation to that area. So the area the inflammation was was that quite high up then? Yeah. So it was a C5, so cervical 5. Yeah. So that's the highest level of the the spinal cord. You have the cervical, thoracic, lumbar, sacral. So that's right about the base of my neck, which lined up to where my function, you know, was right around, you know, my, right above my my pecs is where the line between no function and complete function was. Right. And that's why it's gr- you couldn't originally get your arms up and it's gradually gone down the body. Right. Okay. Exactly. Okay. Is that the final diagnosis or is that the diagnosis no. of the time? Okay. So, well, it's the final diagnosis for some physicians we've seen. Okay. So some will say, yeah, this looks like an autoimmune condition that caused scarring and inflammation. Others are like, this was a vascular event. Essentially, you had a spinal stroke. So most people think of strokes in the brain, right? You mm-hmm. have a, an area of the brain that is no longer receiving blood flow and the tissue dies. What some of my neurologists think is that there was an area of the spinal cord that was not receiving blood flow and then the nerves there died. So, but it's not just like you have this area of the spinal cord and just, you know, just that cervical area that controls your shoulders or your arm is affected. Anything below that is also affected. So it was, it was a really high injury on the spinal cord. And, you know, I, I don't know what happened. I still don't know what happened, but I, I do lean more toward it, it being a spinal stroke, in my opinion, because I have, you know, I do have um, a blood disorder, which causes oxygen to not sufficiently be moved through the blood, which- That's a blood disorder you had previous to that. Yeah. Okay. That it's genetic. So my dad has it, his dad has it. Um, and, and that would make sense if oxygen's not flowing properly through the blood and you're doing all of this intense, you know, work that could lead to areas of the body not receiving enough oxygen. And in this case, it was a spinal cord. That's just my hypothesis. You know, I'm not a medical expert, but after just looking at it and trying to piece it together, that's kind of what I've come to think. And, you know, I guess that's just what gives me, kind of the, the right word isn't comfort, but I guess satisfaction that that's what I think happened. And I'm guessing you've done uh, a lot of Googling and research. I did a whole neuroscience degree. (laughs) Because of this? Because of this. Oh, we will come to that. Okay. we'll get to that. Right, okay. Um, Yeah, isn't it strange though, like you would expect the doctors to just know. You kind of just expect them to know. And tell me if this is your experience. I'll do the experience of uh, my mother when she got diagnosed with cancer. You get a diagnosis, but you don't, it doesn't matter how many people you see, there's not always a consistent recommendation of what you can do. So my mum basically did her, her own research in trying to treat it. She had the treatment from the doctors. Um, she had different consultants give her different ideas of what she can do, and then she did what she did herself. I don't know if you had a similar experience, but like uh, my expectation prior to this is having not had anything serious myself is that you just go, diagnosis is, uh, are consistent and... The, uh, the consultants give you a consistent plan of action. But that's not what was the case with my mother, which surprised me. I don't yeah. know if yours was a similar scenario. Yeah, it, w- it was similar where we would go to 
one doctor who was supposedly the renowned figure in the space. We would go to another one who was a renowned figure in the space. They would have competing diagnosis. And because they were competing, they had different treatment protocols uh, for the most part. You know, one recommended this drug, another recommended this. One said this was important to do. The other said that's not important to do. So um, what I credit my parents for in this process is they were able to take multiple opinions, synthesize what they thought was the best course of action for me. And, you know, I, I tried to do my best in that scenario, but I was still... I was 15. So I was trying to understand everything and do my best, but really it was, you know, a large responsibility of my parents to try to do the right, make the right calls. And I think they made the right calls. Looking back, I don't, I don't think they passed up anything that I would have done or made me do anything that I wouldn't have done. So okay. I really give them credit because there were a lot of competing ideas and a lot of competing, take this drug for this intense drug that we may or may not know the side effects of, you know, go and do that. You know, they had to decide is, is, is the benefits of that drug worth the potential consequences of that drug? Uh, how long were you in hospital for that hospital? That hospital was for 10 days because I had to do the anti-inflammatory course uh, of drugs. And I also did um, this treatment called plasmapheresis, which is essentially... Uh, a blood filtering uh, process where they take your blood out of your body over a course of several days. They filter what they believe are harmful agents out of the blood and then kind of push your body or push your blood back into your body. So it was like a, a filtering mechanism paired with those anti-inflammatory agents to bring down the inflammation around that, that lesion or that uh, injury in the spinal cord. And that those two combined lasted 10 days. And during that period, what kind of functions were you getting back? So during that time, not a lot of function. I, you know, my days consisted mostly of just lying in, in the bed and I was watching, there was a TV up in the corner and I love just watching the nature channel. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure why, but like something about just like deer running through like the prairie. I was like, this is great. <laughs> so I watched, I watched uh, the nature channel a lot while they were doing those infusions because those lasted. They would come in in the morning at like nine or 10 and you wouldn't be done until the evening. So shit. You had to be there hooked up. Uh, it's almost like time. dialysis. Yeah. Yeah. Because it's, yeah, that plasmapheresis, I would relate to dialysis. Right. Um, but so, so the two pronged approach to these conditions, these neurological conditions where they have no cure and they have really no pharmaceuticals or drugs to give you to really do anything. It's not like they could just give me a drug to regrow that area of the spinal cord. You know, that, that doesn't exist. So the two-pronged approach is one, let's try to clean it up as much as possible. Get that inflammation down. Let's filter out harmful agents in the blood. Once we've done that, therapy. It's on you to do physical therapy with therapists, and try to regain strength over time. And there's no guarantee that you'll get any strength back depending on the, you know, the severity of the injury. But if you, you know, if you do the therapy and there is potential to get strength back and you do the therapy well, then you could regain, you know, strength. So in my head, I'm like, 
okay, challenge, you know, challenge accepted. Let's go, I'm going, yeah, let's go. I'm going to go to therapy. I'm going to treat it essentially like I was treating my basketball yeah. and my lifting. I'm going to, you know, so I'm, after those 10 days, I moved to a children's therapy center in Chicago where- How um, far away is that from your home though? Two and a half hours. Okay, but you, okay, so what was mom staying with you? Or mom stayed with me. Mom yep. stayed with you. So she stayed up there uh, for, so I was inpatient there for six weeks. Okay. So she stayed with me those six weeks. My brother and dad would come stay on the weekend. And then on the weekends, my dad would stay in the room with me. And then my mom would stay with my brother at the hotel. Because, you know, one aspect that I don't, you know, I don't think about enough is that my brother was a son, he's younger. So he was, he's two years younger than me. He would have been 12 or 13 at that time. He was left without his mom. And my dad was working, you know, to provide, right? So my dad was at work essentially the whole time. He was left essentially on an island by himself for months, right? And my, my grandparents pitched in as best as they could his school principal would like drive him home from school. So he was without like parental, you know, uh, you know, I wouldn't say without parental guidance, but not, not the same as a, the nuclear family being at home every night, cooking him dinner. He didn't have his mom for like two or three months. What, what kind of kid is he? Like, is he a good kid, naughty kid? No, he's a good kid. All right, okay. But I mean, it's still, if you don't have your, yeah. you have your mom at that young of an age, it, yeah. it, it, you know, he missed her. He missed me. He was worried about me. Um, so that was really tough on him. How, how was he around you at first? Did he know, like, was he cool with it or was he freaked out? I think it was, I think he was freaked out because, okay. uh, I mean, it's very shocking when, you know, he, he looked, he, I mean, he still looked up to me, but he looked up to me from a, uh, a strong athletic, like, you know, male standpoint, I guess at that point, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know how you would have you're to ask, the, You're the big brother, right? I'm the big brother. And then he comes in and he sees, you know, me in a hospital bed with no movement. So I'm sure it was an adjustment for him. Yeah, I mean, the, the only thing I have to like empathize with that scenario, when I was 18, my sister was knocked down by a police car. Um, and the only reason she survived the police cars at like 50 miles an hour yeah. is when she got tossed in the air, she landed on her mouth, her teeth saved mm -hmm. her. They were shattered, but they saved her. And uh, she was my older sister and I was taken to the hospital to see her. And she was, she was actually in a coma uh, and just strapped up to these machines. I think she died twice during the night. And you just, it's so overwhelming. Like everything's overwhelming. You, you have no idea what's going on. But I was 18. I mean, what did you say? He was 13? Yeah. Yeah, it's a lot to deal with. So I'm sure he was shocked, but it, eventually he was cool with it. Yeah. Um, but it obviously any any situation that severe is going to be shocking when you go in and you see someone, especially when hours earlier they were just fine. And then you go in and, and within a matter of hours, it's it's a completely different setup. But even though like this is obviously a really testing time, did they start to get to a point where you could laugh and joke? Like, was that at all happening? I think so. Yeah. yeah. I mean, we would make, I'm, we would make the best out of those situations. Um, you know, I have, I remember there was a video of, of me still at the hospital before going to that rehab center of me trying to like pick up this cookie and eat it. Right. It's something so trivial to yeah. most people. Like you have a cookie on the table, like put it in your mouth. Right. And it was like this three minute process of me trying to like, 
grab this cookie off the table. And I have like no, I had like no arm strength. So I finally like get it. And then like my hands like flop on my face and I'm like, you know, <laughs> just like eating it like that. Right. So there, there are those moments where it's, it's not like this serious thing the whole time. Right. Yeah. Like it's still your life. You're still trying to navigate it. And what are the next steps? And there's so many people coming in and out. So it's kind of like, maybe exciting. You're like, oh, there's a new person there. They uh-huh. want to come talk to me now. And like, we're, oh, we're going to Chicago, you know? So it's like the emotions, are, it's emotional roller coaster of like, okay, this really weird thing happened to me, but like, oh, all these, you know, I'm going to Chicago for six weeks to this therapy center. This is interesting. And now all these people are tweeting at me because they, I don't know, they want to give their support or something. Yeah. So it's, it's all of these really weird emotions bundled up and you're getting your blood out of you put it back into you, right? So it's 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 just very it's very strange. And so when you moved to the Chicago hospital, you'd said in those first 10 days you hadn't really gained any function back. No. So were you essentially quadriplegic? Yep. Yeah. So I, I still am technically. Technically. So t- the diagnosis for a quadriplegic is just any paralysis in all four limbs. Okay. So where a paraplegic is paralysis in two limbs. Yeah. And most of the time that just means you have paralysis in your legs. Yeah. Because it's like we said, it's hard to have paralysis, you know, in your in your arms and not in your legs, just because of the way that the communication flows from the brain. If you have like a spot up here, it's usually gonna affect places below it. So because it's like that that whole train track analogy. So anything below that spot is going to be affected for the most part. So I'm still a quadriplegic, uh, you know, but people people may or may not label me as that because I can walk around. And yeah. for the most part, people are like, okay, like he has a limp. He has, you know, weak hands. His hands don't look the same. They don't work the same, but he can walk around. So he's not a quadriplegic. But yeah, you know. I, I, my assumption on quadru, uh, if you're quadriplegic, you're in a wheelchair, you, right. know, you have no function below. Right. Okay. So, so there are, yeah. Learn right. something today. So, yeah. So there are, you know, it's, it's, it depends what your, your definition is, but the, the yeah. medical definition is that like, if I go see my doctor, he's, you know, I'm a quadriplegic to him. So. Yeah. And I'm pretty sure, like, I'm trying to remember back to the thread. Cause I mean, the last time I looked was shortly after I showed it to Danny, I read it twice. I feel like I saw you in like a chair, mm-hmm. but like, I feel like, were you strapped into it? Um, I don't think I was strapped in, but like, I was like, it was a, it was a heavy duty chair, yeah. right? Like my arms were up here and that was really one of the, the first chairs that I had. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah that one it. up there. Okay. So, so is, we'll, we'll put this up in the, the people on YouTube. Okay. And then, uh, what's the other one? Was that prior? Oh, this one. This is from like a few months ago. Oh, oh right. Okay. Yeah, that's my cat. This is me. Is this, is this okay. So that that's is. That's not the original thread, though, right? No, no. This is. Is that the original thread? Yeah, yeah. Uh, okay, yeah, I remember now. So that was, yeah, that was me trying to put my arms above my head, and I'm glad I documented that. I thought it was so funny. But so like, was that before? Yeah, that was. Happened? That was the night before. You know, I. My parents had to like carry me out to the car and go to the hospital, right? It was that first day where I experienced symptoms and you can see I can barely put my arms you look up like, above my head. You look like a, a young college bro. <laughs> oh yeah, I know. Uh, okay. Okay, so, so the six weeks, where did you get from at the start to the end of the six weeks? I gained a lot in those six weeks. Okay. Uh, so when I first got to the children's hospital, I was having a lot of neck pain from lying in bed 
for, you know, several days at that point. And I, when you, when you lie in bed for that long, you lose all your muscle mass. It just, it literally just melts away. Yeah. So everything, you know, I, I had worked to build at that point, which wasn't a lot. I was like 14 or 15, but all of that muscle mass just pretty much melted away. And I could barely like lift my head up off, off the bed. So when I first got to that, uh, children's center, I remember them uh, coming in the first day and they're like, all right, we're going to put on socks. And I was like, I can barely lift my head off this bed without screaming in pain. So um, I remember that first session, I was like crying because it, it hurt so badly. And my mom was like, okay, like we need to get him medication to take away this pain so that he can actually participate in therapy. So they put me on an oral steroid and that like immediately eliminated the pain, which was beautiful. And I've reflected on this a lot and, I, and I've, I've given the advice to people who have just gone through these types of events that you wanna get to as little to no pain as possible because then you can actually focus on recovery. It's really hard to focus on what, you know, what my next step should be or going to therapy when you're just in severe pain the entire time. Yeah. And obviously, you know, some people do have to do both. They have to, there's no remedy for their pain immediately. And maybe they'll have pain their entire lives and they have to manage that pain while they do therapy. But if you have the ability to eliminate that pain or at least tone it down so that you can do your therapy, I think that's a, that's a good course because as soon as that happened to me, then I was like, okay, sure, I'll, I'll try to put on these socks. You know, I have no function in my hands. I cannot sit up. I have no core strength. I'll try to put on these socks for, with you for an hour straight. Right? It took me an hour, and I probably didn't even put it on. So um, those six weeks are, you know, I, I really enjoyed it because of the intensity of it. You had two hours of physical therapy each day, and then two hours of occupational therapy. Did so, you like the intensity because it was almost like training, like yes. back to basketball? Yeah. But, I, it, but had you also convinced yourself, like, you were, at this point, are you thinking you're going to get back to oh, yeah. full function? I'm like, I'm going to walk out of here in six weeks. But, but do you believe you, you would be getting back to the point, like the video, you'd be getting back to... Eventually, or, I was yeah. like, okay, maybe I got to miss the season. All right, cool. Right? Okay. But like junior year, I, okay. like, I'll miss this season, but junior year, I'll be, I'll, I'll be able to do it. You know, I'll be able to play at, at that level that I want to play at. Caroline, is he competitive with everything? Yes. Yeah, yeah, I thought yeah. so. Yeah. Okay, I like that. So the, the therapy, so the physical therapy is what you would think of. It's like, let's try to, eventually, let's try to stand. Let's try to do some core exercises. Let's try to sit on this ball without falling off. And then the occupational therapy is really for hands. Most people think of occupational therapy as I got hurt on the construction job and now I'm going to work on that specific aspect so that I can go back to my job. Um, because I think in America, like o occupational therapy is like synonymous to like you're, you're doing therapy so you can get back to your job. Um, like if you have like a, la like a labor job. Um, but in this case, in like my treatment uh, plan, it was focused extensively on my, like anything below my shoulder. So my hands... Um, specifically, like, can you brush your teeth? Can you use the bathroom? Can you put your clothes on? Can you make your bed? All of these little tasks that, you know, everyone just does. It was, it's not, you know, most people say I, I had to relearn how to do that. It's not relearning in the sense that I forgot how to brush my teeth. It was, okay, I have a toothpaste 
right in front of me. I have a toothbrush right in front of me. How am I going to unscrew the toothpaste when I have no grip in either hands? And all I can do is maybe pick up the toothpaste like this. How am I gonna brush my hand or brush my teeth when I, have, I cannot like pick up a toothpaste, unscrew it, squeeze it onto my toothbrush, pick the toothbrush up and then brush my teeth? How am I going to do that when all I can do is do, you know, put my hands in my face? It feels like there's two things there. There's learning to function with what you have. Yep. But also learning to regain function. Right, right. Because you, you know, when you're first in that place, you'll do everything you can to brush your teeth. And then the therapist's job is to, okay, you can, you can do it and that's passable, but we're going to try to improve on that over time so that you can more easily do it right? Because it's, sure, you can do it in the way that you just described, but we're going to try to get it to where you can unscrew the toothpaste, where you can take your hand and then squeeze the toothpaste onto the toothbrush, right? Trying to get it more to that, um, that prior space where, you know, before my injury, where it was, it was second nature. This show is brought to you by Big Casino. Established in 2013, Big Casino was the first licensed Bitcoin casino, and they are trusted by tens of thousands of players worldwide. Not only do they have cutting-edge security, but they also have fast withdrawals and VIP experiences that money can't buy. With over 2,800 games and tournaments to compete against each other and 24-7 live chat support, BitCasino is the best Bitcoin casino that you can go to. Now, if you want to find out more about BitCasino, the first Bitcoin casino to win an EGR award, head over to bitcasino.io, which is B-I-T-C-A-S-I-N-O dot I-O. And please remember to gamble responsibly. Next up, we have Ledin. Now, from savings accounts to personal loans and even mortgages, Ledin's financial services enable Bitcoiners to experience the benefits of their holdings today without selling their Bitcoin. Ledin only supports Bitcoin and USDC, two of the highest quality and most liquid assets in the industry. They are also dedicated to transparency and are the first digital asset lending company to complete a proof of reserves attestation, which they will re-verify every six months. With multilingual support on standby 24-7, Ledin is there to support all your needs. And not only a Ledin sponsor, I am also a customer of theirs too. Now, if you want to find out more, please head over to ledin.io, which is L-E-D-N. Io. Also today we have Ledger. Now recent events have highlighted just how important self-custody is and Ledger is the smartest and easiest way for you to take control of your Bitcoin and the world's most popular hardware wallet just got better. Ledger have recently announced the launch of their Nano S Plus. The larger screen makes it easier to manage and verify your Bitcoin transactions and the Nano S Plus maintains the same high level of security as all other Ledger products. Now, I have been a Ledger customer since early 2017, before I even started this podcast, and I absolutely love the S+. If you want to find out more and purchase a hardware wallet from Ledger, then please head over to shop.ledger.com, which is S-H-O-P dot L-E-D-G-E-R dot com. I'm not sure how you would explain this, but like, when I see this pen on this table and I want to pick it up, I don't know how I, it happens. It just happens, Right. When you're in that position, you also want to pick it up. What's actually happening? Are you trying and just the hands like slowly, like trying to explain what's like relearning function is like? So let me, can I borrow your pen? You can borrow my pen. Okay. You can't see my notes. So this pen right now, my left hand has, I'll move these. 
I don't know if that's better. I have this pen here. Right now I've done rehabilitation over seven and a half years where I can pick up this pen. Okay. Right. Before my injury, I was right-handed. My right hand, like my right hand right now, I can extend the fingers a little bit, but like I cannot close them very right. well. So I have no, like you see here how I have like pinch, I can pinch, pick this up. Mm -hmm. This has no pinch. So like, how am I gonna pick that up? So what I would do is I would be, I would look at what I needed to do. I would say, these are the tools I have. What am I going to do to pick up this pen? And it's not like I'm, it, it's, it's a lot of trial and error. It's a lot of iteration. You're looking at it and you're like, okay, that doesn't work. That doesn't work. And over time you get more function and you figure out what to do. A cool story, a cool tangent is I was right-handed before, I'm left-handed now. So I learned how to do everything with my left hand. So so you write left-handed? Yeah, now I do. And it, it is it I, neat? Yeah. I it, it's exact I, I did a post one time where I showed before my injury what my handwriting was, and then I, I wrote the same words uh, with my left hand, you know, after my injury, and it's identical. So it was really cool that um that I was able to learn how to do that. But uh, to answer your question, it's it's a lot of trial and error and it's trying not to be frustrated, but it can be frustrating when your goal is to be completely independent again, hmm. right? Before I was, I, I didn't want someone to always write for me. I wanted to do my best so that I could I could pick up the pen and I could write for myself or no one was brushing my teeth for me. I was doing my best to try to brush my teeth. And there are some things that I still need, you know, I still benefit help with, like at very physical tasks. Like, you know, if the trash needs to be taken out and it's like all the way down the apartment complex, right? Sometimes I'll have Caroline just help me run that down because okay. that's very like, you know, it requires a lot of effort. Um, but my goal over time is to like try to, you know, do as best I can so that I, I can do more of I can do more of those things for myself. So there's no scenarios where you just like can't be asked and you say, Karen, I, I can't do this. <laughs> she's really good at like picking up some of that, but sometimes she's like, seriously, you can do it. Right. <laughs> uh, so what what is going on here? It, is it a case of the scar tissue in the spinal column is stopping a message get somewhere? Yeah. And but when you are relearning is it there is some repair happening in the spinal column? Like how's that new muscle memory coming back? So what, what is really cool about the nervous system is, well, it can't grow back. Yeah. So when nerves die, they're done. But what they can do is they can reroute okay. around areas. So what you're doing by this quote unquote relearning is some nerves that once did one function will decide you know, I'm not telling them to do it. They will decide over time that I'm best utilized doing this other task that is no longer receiving function. That's insane. It is. Yeah, the nervous system is really cool. It's it's really, um, it's not like this wire system where this wire will always go here and always do this thing. It's very what we call like plastic where it will, okay, I think I can better better be used over here. I'm going to reroute maybe 20% of what once went over here over here and then we're going to try to you know give this give this person grip again right right so in the 
when you're going through the rehabilitation, trying to relearn things, is that is that like a, a response from the body saying, okay, I, th- I think I know what you're trying to do here. I'm going to, like, it's relearning and it's rerouting yeah. based on that. Yeah, and especially over, so for context, really after these injuries, you have a year, maybe two years to see growth and recovery. Okay. Like insane growth and recovery. After that, it, it's it's not set in stone, but it's much harder to have that explosive recovery. So the physicians will tell you, okay, this is, you know, this is your time. You want to do as much as you can in therapy, treat it very seriously because you can, you have a lot of rerouting potential. And especially as a young person where your nervous system is still developing, it's much more responsive to that rerouting. Whereas if you put a 95-year-old grandma, it's it's not as responsive, the, the nervous system is not as flexible or responsive to those changes. So if a grandmother had my same injury, I would probably see more recovery and adaptability by my body because the, the, the connections are not as in a solid or finished state because most people know the brain stops developing in your 20s. But up until that 20s point, you know, you you have a lot of growth, you have a lot of development, both mentally, but definitely physically as well. Uh, I find the nervous system like kind of spooky as well. It's kind of weird in that, uh, I don't know if you know, I had back surgery a couple of years ago. Yep. I, um, I think obviously like what you've been through, uh, I had a herniated disc and I had sciatica. And what was weird, the sciatica pain in the back of the leg, what my consultant was saying, you've got no pain in your leg. It's the nervous system being tricked by uh, the uh, herniated disc pressing on that. That bit is the part that sends the message to the brain if there is pain on there. And it's just interfering that. Yes. So fucking weird. Yeah. It's because it it makes you realize all pain is really just a part of the body doing a job to tell you something. Yes. There's, there's, There's no such thing as actual pain. It's just a message. Yeah. Which I always found weird. Did you have any of that ghost stuff going on? I, so the only real pain I had was that initial neck pain. Okay. Thankfully, because I, I think it would have been really difficult. And a lot of the, a lot of the kids I was with at that hospital did have a lot of, a lot of pain. So they would have to spend a lot of their time with therapists trying to work through that pain. So I'm glad that, um, I didn't because that it was very tough in those first few that first couple of weeks dealing with that pain. Um, but what you know, some quadriplegics do have at the beginning is that they'll have that pain, but they'll also have like intense like nerve pain as well, where that that tingling that I was experiencing in the very beginning, they'll just like feel that very intensely throughout the body. That tingling, like you can think of it as when you sleep on your arm and you wake up in the morning and you're like, I cannot like it's full of static yeah. and you're like shaking your arm, yeah, right? But it never goes away. So that's what that that tingling is like. And it, it can be very painful over time. Yeah. You talked about at the very start that you were doing a lot of weight training and things. Did you attribute any of that to a potential cause of the injury? My physicians were concerned about that. They were like, did you do any different movements? You know, any different lifts in that, that those few days prior? Like maybe you tried a new machine or a new movement and it caused maybe your, your, your spinal, those vertebrae to pinch on your spinal cord or maybe push through it and cause trauma. But it was eventually ruled out because it doesn't look, the imaging doesn't look like blunt force trauma. It just looks like a, you know, a vascular event of like just, just dead tissue, but not like bones or anything pushing through the spinal cord. 
how common is this? Not common. Not common, and no. which is why there isn't the specific drugs or research into it. Yeah, it, it's it's not common at all. Um, there, I mean, this specific type of of like quadriplegia, right? There are like car accidents, there are football injuries that all sort of have the same end result, but the way of okay, you wake up and you have like this tingling and this weakness is not a very common. I, I can't give you like one and like 10 million, right? But right. Um, it's it's not as, it's not very common. Okay, so you've done the six weeks in Chicago. Yep. Uh, is that the point you're sent home? That's the point I'm sent home. And that's that's the part where I, I feel I get to, there's several lows mentally in this process. That was the first low I experienced because the first six weeks, seven weeks of doing all this therapy and, you know, the, the drugs and infusions, exciting. You're, you're surrounded with all these people, you're doing intense therapy, you are in Chicago, you- You're they, improving. Yep, you're improving. And, you know, they, they want you to go out on the weekends to try to, how are you gonna navigate a mall after this, Kale? How are you gonna go to a restaurant after this, Kale? So they're, they're really trying to push you to not just sit at home and do nothing, which is unfortunately what I decided to do. But when, when, you first, when I first came home, when we made that drive home, we got, we got home, we got in the driveway. And when we were in the driveway, I was like, cr I was crying because it was a realization that at that point, like I didn't accomplish what I wanted to accomplish in those six weeks where I thought I was just gonna, I was gonna walk out. Um, and a quick story, in that therapy center, there's this grand staircase that leads to the exit which I think is really funny because you have a bunch of kids in wheelchairs <laughs> <laughs> and there's this grand staircase and all the kids would kind of just, and the lunchroom is right on, on the bottom of that staircase. You have all these kids <laughs> looking at this like 25 stair staircase, like, hmm. Is that meant to be inspiration? I have no idea. I just feel like it was like, it pissed everyone off, you know? <laughs> My mom was like, are you serious, you know? But- um, Were you walking at all at that point? Not at that point, no. I'm not even like, were they not trying to get you to walk? They were trying to, but- Was that on those bars? That took, that took several, that, that took like six months. Okay. So by the, by the time I left those six, seven weeks, I could like maybe stand with like three or four people okay. making sure I didn't just like fall over. Okay. So, but going back to when I got home, it was the first time I took into account the mental aspect of, okay, well, like this is life. And what am I going to do about this? And I, 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 I didn't have a plan for how I was going to, you know, re-enter my life because those six, seven weeks, they don't feel like your actual life. You feel like you're in a therapy center doing, you know, w working out the entire day. But th this was over the summer period. Yeah. Yeah. So I got home in late August, which is when I should have been starting school, but I didn't start school. Um, I didn't go back until October that year and I was doing remote work where my teachers would send me like assignments and I would, I wouldn't like write at that point, I wasn't writing. Someone would have to write for me, which made the whole process. Can you imagine like doing, I was doing like geometry and I was like, um, mom, like, can you write this equation? Right, it's just like, it was, it was really painful and frustrating. Like, can you draw this triangle? Like, no, you you drew it wrong. You know, erase that, you know? Oh man, listen, during COVID, I had to uh, do the homeschooling for my daughter and there were, uh... There were a few moments. 
Yeah, I know. Uh, yeah, but so, but but you still got back to school within two months. So the, the, so when you go home, what is the plan from on the medical front? Uh, you come in once a week. You come in once a like so. It's a, it's a very slow transition. So the reason they want you to go home is so you can get reintegrated with your community yep. and figure out how you're going to live, you know, how you're going to continue living your life. So those six weeks inpatient are done. Then they want you to come back three times a week for outpatient. So I would, outpatient therapy. So I would go up like Monday, Tuesday-ish and go and, and be there for three or four days at the same place. Yeah, but I would stay in a different part of the hospital where no nurses, no no care team was treating me. It was just my mom and I. Uh, and at that point, she was doing literally everything for me. She was helping me shower. She was helping me use the bathroom. She was helping me put on my clothes, brush my teeth, all of these things. So, which you hated. She didn't give a shit because she's your mom. Right. I I was like, well, you know, you adapt to it a little bit. Yeah. Right. Over t- if you if you've done that for several months at that point, you're like, okay, mom, like it's time to shower. Right. It's no longer weird. Um, but yeah, obviously, I wanted to like shower on my own. Yeah. You know. So when we went back to outpatient therapy, it was still doing the same workouts and stuff like that. Where eventually, that's where I was able to stand up. I was able to walk in those bars. I had a series of braces on my legs that I worked through. One that was like a full leg brace. And once I graduated from that, I would—I had a shorter brace below my knee. Once I graduated from that, I had a different brace, right? So it was this progression of braces, also a progression of walkers. So like assistive devices, where at first it was like a very big walker that I could put all of my forearm strength into. And so that I wasn't really putting weight through my legs. And then once I, you know, was, was comfortable with that, then it was, okay, let's do a less assistive walker so that you're forced to put more, you know, weight through your legs. So over that six months, I was, you know, I think I was able to walk just a little bit. I was still using my my wheelchair to get around, but even then, like I had no arm strength, so I couldn't really like push my wheelchair at all. Okay, so when you're back at school though in October, yeah. have you got somebody pushing you around at school? No. I, I was, well, yes, but I didn't really go to school. Oh, so semester. you're doing it at home. When yeah. did you go back to school? In school? It would have been the next year, academic oh, year. Oh, okay. So you were doing it, you, when you went you went back to school, you mean you were doing the homeschooling? Yeah, I went to school like two, like a- actually to school that, that sophomore year, like two times a year. What? But like I went into the school like twice, but I was doing all of my work virtually. And those two times, was it to see friends or actually go to class? It was like, try to go to class, but then it was like, I'm, I was like not ready for that yet. How was everyone else that's around you at school? It was like, they were, they were obviously supportive, but it felt like a pity case. Yeah. You know, whereas like, I get it. you know, I, before I was, you know, I was an athlete. I, I had an ego to myself, right? I felt like I was, you know, smooth with women, all of these things. And then when I went there, it was just like, oh, hi, buddy. You know, yeah. like, oh, hi, you know? And I, I hated that. Yeah, I thought that. it was like, it was like, and I had a, you know, I had a really good group of friends that came up every single weekend that summer. And they were, they did a really great job of making sure that I, you know, wasn't isolated that summer in Chicago by myself. Yeah. And then when I was trying to reintegrate into my school and community, 
they were they were really leading that effort in a non-pity way. And I really appreciated that. They treated me like I was still kale. Because I was still kale, yeah. I was just working through a condition, but everyone else was like, oh. Yeah, you want them you know? to give you shit, right? Yeah, I wanted, I, I just wanted people to like, you know, if I was being a dick, like tell me I'm a dick. Yeah. If I'm being an asshole, I'm an asshole. But, you know, I, I didn't, the, the looks, it, it was either the sympathy or pity looks or it was the complete avoidance yeah. of me, right? And it, it was just like, guys, like I, you used to, you know, you used to do X, Y, Z with me. You used to call me over for lunch. You used to want to sit by me in class. And now it's just kind of like, it just was gross, you know? But I feel like that's a natural human response when you see, you know, someone disabled or you see someone in a wheelchair, you're like, oh, but like really all that person, that person just going through a, a condition that's external, right? It's the physical manifestation of what every other person is going through internally, yeah. right? Like, so I, it, it really bothers me. If let's say someone lost their brother, right? They're working through that mentally internally. I was working through it physically, externally, but I, huh. I'm getting all of the, you know, the, the pity. I just, I just wanted to be treated like I had been treated before. Yeah. I mean, I guess it's hard because people sometimes don't know what to do, right. but at the same time, it's like, that's why you need your close buddies around you. Yeah. You need the close buddies yeah. to like protect you and to be the, the intermediary yeah. force between people who are not sure what to do. Um, it is tough. And I mean, we were all kids in that high school, right? It's yeah. not like we were 20s, 30s. It's it's kids and, and kids don't really always respond the best way. But even now, like if this was to happen, I went to work, I'm sure there would still be coworkers who do the same thing. Yeah, I think like my, my main goal of like what I'm trying to do is like really break down that, that first like gut feeling of pity when you when you see someone who's disabled, it's really to just be like, okay, that's a person who's working through something just like we all are. They're still just a person. So I'm gonna treat them with decency. I'm not going to look at them in a, in a way of pity and I'm not going to just avoid looking at them because they're in a chair yeah. or they walk different, right? Yeah, but there's also the, uh, the flip side to like the pity is also, and I don't mean this in a condescending way, but they also can then be inspiration for others. That is like something that you will have that you may not want to have or may not yeah. accept, but it will exist. Yeah, I think about that a lot because people will say that, you know, they'll, they'll say, you know, I'm inspiring or they'll see, you know, an example of that, um, that I'm, that I see a lot is like on social media, there'll be like a, a figure skater or a snowboarder who's like amp amputated, right? They're just, they, and they're like a professional athlete or something, but everyone's like, oh, you know, that's so inspirational. If that, if that person can do it, then I can do it. So it, it feels like when people say that, it almost is like they're using that person as an object of like, oh, you know, like that person has it so, so bad. You know, if, if they're able to get up and do it, then like, so can I. And it, it just, it, it feels uh, I don't know, maybe it is condescending. It's just that person is working through something. They're, they they don't really want to be treated like that. They want to be a bro, right? They want to yeah. be they want to be in. They don't want to be othered in that way. Yeah, but I'm going to push back on you a little bit here sure. because 
you did put your Twitter thread out there. So sure. you've, you've told your story. Yeah. And there are there may be a scenario where someone goes through something similar to you. Yeah. And they might find that. So like whilst you might think it's kind of like condescending, there may be another 15-year-old kid who sees this and is like, okay, he started here and he got here. Yeah. And that, no, that's who I want to speak to, right? Good, yeah. I think it's I think it's just people who are people who use it as a way to like get out, get out of bed, you know, like any, like a, just a regular person who is like, okay, now I'm going to go do the dishes because of that. Like I, I want my story to help those who are in similar circumstances, obviously, but also to be like educational to the point where people realize, you know, I'm working through something hard. Sure. But it's, you know, it's just my story and I want, I want to help people, but I want to educate, you know, external observers as well. But look, uh, you might, you might inspire somebody with a shitty example and not even know about it. And I don't think, I personally don't think that's an issue. And sure. I can see where it's coming from for you because like I'm starting to learn part of the journey like it almost feels like in the camp of that pity area. Yeah, but that's that's what I'm trying to avoid. Yeah, you know, is the the feeling of inspiration out of pity. Right? Yeah, but I don't think it is inspiration out of pity. Sure, I mean, sure that might happen, but it's like that. Uh, what's that? Th- no good deed goes unpunished. Yeah, yeah, it's from Wicked. Yeah, so like, if if, if any kind of goodness that comes out of it, like. Just take it, I would say. But like, who am I to tell you? Yeah, yeah. It, it's definitely so. If, if people are interested in it, it's um, it's called inspiration porn. Huh. Um, so it's it's essentially using others as you would use, you know, in, in the sexual porn standpoint. It's I'm going to use these two bodies in front in front of me to receive gratification. In this standpoint, is I'm going to use, you know, this this you know, uh, an image of this 16-year-old amputee or the 16-year-old quadriplegic as, as a way to be, be motivated to go on with my day. Essentially, that, that is the, um, it's, it's, it's a, I guess, a theory. Yeah, and I guess you, you know it more because you're living it, right? Yeah. Yeah, okay. So you said when you got back, you were going through like a, like a depressive episode. Yeah. What, what was going on there? So it was really just when you got back, when I got back, I was not sure what I was going to do, how I was going to handle myself, how I was going to reintegrate myself because I wasn't going to school. And sure, some people were coming over, that core friend group was coming over sometimes, but really I was just sitting in my room just by myself. And if you just sit in your room by yourself for long enough, right, you begin to spiral. And I think what I needed more of is I needed people to tell me, Kale, like, go live your life. Like, we're going to figure out a way that if you want to go to the taco restaurant down the road, we're going to get you to the taco restaurant. My fear was I would be a burden on others if I wanted to go and go to the taco restaurant, right? Because at that time, I had a wheelchair. So we would need to find a way to put the wheelchair into the car make sure I was in the car comfortably. When we got to the space, we needed to make sure I got out of the car into the wheelchair. Then what if the taco restaurant only had stairs and there was no ramp into the taco restaurant? Are you going to carry me up the stairs and then carry my wheelchair up the stairs? What if the door 
frame is not wide enough for my wheelchair because I had a large wheelchair because I'm 6'3". What if I could not physically get my wheelchair in? And then what if I got into the restaurant and then all the tables were too close to each other? So I had to interrupt all the parties to move them so that I could get to a table. And then what if I need to use the restroom and I have, a, you know, at the time, an elaborate way of using the restroom and I can't get into the restroom and the stall that I need to get into is too small for my wheelchair. So I can't even use the restroom at the, at the restaurant. All of these things yeah. cycling through my head, I'm just going to stay home. Yeah. Yeah. I get that. Right. Okay. Uh, so really like a big next part is to be able to get beyond the wheelchair. Do you ever still use one? I, I use a scooter. Okay. I, I would say the next part is not, the next part is regain, is is capitalizing on the opportunity that I, I didn't really know of how much, how much function can I regain? Yeah. And that's, nobody knows. It's not okay, like the doctor okay. says, this is your endpoint. You'll be able to walk with a limp and your hands will somewhat work. No one knows. Okay, right. so it might have been that you cannot get back to a place of walking. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, okay. it could have easily have just been like that was it. But you so, have that limited window. You have a window, but you know the the window is a from academic journals. Who really knows what's happening? Okay. Right. Okay. I would say it's not to. My goal was to get to walking, but I think really what it is is trying to capitalize on the opportunity to regain function, physically mentally is what I completely ignored for several years is the reintegrating and living life, right? So even though I would always find an excuse, even when I could, I could use a wheelchair and then I could walk sort of with a limp or with a cane or with a walker, mentally, I would still find an excuse not to do it. Okay. I would be like, oh, you know, maybe it's too far from where the cars park. Maybe the bathroom won't work for me. Maybe uh, people are going to want to do other activities after and I'm not going to be strong enough to do it. So it's the mental component that I think I didn't take into account, but is really the most important part is having the right attitude, uh, more of a can-do attitude. Like I can go and do these things. I don't have to stay at home and we will figure it out. I will surround myself with people who will take care of me and look after me. And I didn't have that for, you know, really years. I was really on my own, you know, from a friend group standpoint. When you're on your own from a friend group standpoint, having all of these supposed challenges, which are real, but really are more fear. When you have someone who can help you through that, which I have now, you know, then you can do all of these things and gain confidence. Yeah. Uh, I'm guessing, what was the moment where, because you had the determination early on, okay, I'm going to get back. I'm going to be playing basketball. Yes. All right, it might take a bit longer. Uh, what was the bit where you realized, okay, this is something I'm living with now? Like, It probably took a, uh, probably took a year. Is that a year of acceptance? Not acceptance. Just this is, it is what it is. And okay. I'm, I'm, I'm not happy with this, yeah. but like I, and you know, a lot of that mental drag and, you know, and, you know, depressive episodes is really, I felt out of control. You know, I was like, it was, it was really like, are you serious? Like I work this hard and it doesn't really, it, it didn't give me the results or the outcome that I wanted. Okay. So it was really frustrating, I guess. But, and that's why those depressive episodes came about because I was like, I, I, 
worked this hard in this window of time that you told me, and I'm not where I want to be. What, you know, what did I do wrong? Did I miss an infusion? You know, did I not take a certain drug? Should I have done more? And that's where those episodes come in. And you're, and you're focused on that and you're not focused on living your life, going to school, doing all of these things to, to actually be a person. You're just focused so much on the medical side when you should just be focused on, yeah, you can do your therapy, but let's, let's, let's go out. Let's, let's, let's come do podcasts like these, right? Yeah, yeah. Let, let's, let's feel good. Yeah. But I think, you know, again, I'll push back a little bit. I mean, this is a lot to go through. It is. And you're a kid yep. and there's a lot to figure out. I, I, I'm not surprised it was a roller coaster. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But is that all in the past now? In terms of like the depressive episodes? Uh, yeah. Yeah. From, from a, from a um, oh, my hand, like a, a sadness of like, oh, like I, I can't walk as far. Oh, my hand. It's, it's more of today it's like, Okay, well, it is it, that is what it is. How are we going to accommodate, you know, what I need to do? Do I need to pull out the scooter and we can ride on the scooter for if we need to go for a mile walk? Mm-hmm. Um, do we need to find a way to, you know, oh, I want to eat a steak, but maybe the steak I can't cut. So instead of just not ordering the steak, hey, could you cut the steak for me? You know, finding ways that, I can still do what I want to do where before I would have been like, nope, not going to do these things because I can't do them. I'm not going to use my accommodations. I'm not going to use my scooter, ask for help. I'm just going to try to do everything independently, which, you know, I think is, is noble, but you miss out on a lot of experiences because of it. Are you still, is this, are you still in physio? Is, is this an ongoing thing? So um, I do most of my work on my own now. Okay. They do want me to come back every so often to, you know, check in because, you know, I, I've done it for years. I did therapy for years. So I know what I need to work on, but it's always nice to have someone who's trained in it to be like, you could be doing that movement better. And, you know, when I'm lifting, I don't, I don't have like a 360 view of my body, right? Mm-hmm. So I could be lifting wrong um, or doing an exercise or movement wrong. So it is nice to go back to therapy and have them recommend different movements or have them check on my walking and tell me this could be, this could be better. But When you said you go on the scooter, maybe if it's like a mile. Sure. Is, is that because uh, it's too tiring to walk that far? Like what? Yeah. So it's a combination of fatigue and that fatigue can, can become, you know, it can become uh, dangerous too, because if you get too tired and then you take a misstep, then maybe you fall. And that fall, like sometimes you can just get up, but sometimes that fall may hurt, okay. you know, and then, then you're, you're injured. Uh, maybe you hurt your knee or your leg. So it's, it's kind of out of, okay, I know this is going to be fatiguing. It's out of precaution, but also like, I just want to, I just want to live, you know, I, I don't want to really have to focus on, you know, maybe when I get there, I can walk around, but, uh, in order to get there, I'm just going to use, you know, the tools at my disposal so that I can, I can enjoy. And and is it like you need a plan or do you kind of like when you plan coming to do this trip, you're you're flying in, you got to get here to where we are. Do you have to sit down and make a plan in, in advance or do you just kind of know what you got to do? So now um, I know what I need to do, but that's okay. only because I've, I've, 
I've had these similar instances over time Good. where I know I need to get to the airport. I need to usually ask for wheelchair assist because I know the TSA is going to be, you know, getting through the security is going to be pretty brutal because they're going to be like, what's this brace? Why do you have this on you? Why do you need this? What's in your backpack? So I usually need assistance to get through there or else they're going to be questioning me, patting me down, thinking I'm bringing on, uh, you know, what's that? Is that a bomb on your leg? No. Okay. We're still going to swipe it to make sure there's no metal, yeah. right? They kind of treat me like I'm a cattle or animal because they're, they're not sure how to handle me. So I, I use that wheelchair assist so that I can get through easily. And, um, and then from there, it's just, you know, um, it's pretty, pretty, pretty status quo. I, I, I usually will ask for like pre-boarding so that I can make sure I get on easily and don't have people pushing me from behind trying to get on. Right. Mm -hmm. So there are things that, um, I've, I built in, but it's only cause I've done them so many times, but you do have to plan. Part of this is planning and making sure you have your bases covered as much as possible so that you're not in a situation where, you know, something could go wrong or maybe you're by yourself and you fall on the street and you can't get up. Right. It's, it's making sure that everything is, planned a little to a T, which can be exhausting, but it's just to make sure everything goes smoothly. And where you are physically now, uh, looking forward, have you got specific goals of like certain places you want to get to? I think physically, I, uh, physically I'm content. Okay. I, I do want to like, I want to build strength, not out of not because I really want to, um, you know, uh, run or jump. That would be cool. But it's really like I want to limit fatigue in my daily okay. life, right? If I want to go on that mile walk and maybe it's, or maybe I want to go hiking on a mountain, how am I going to take a scooter on a rock? Yeah. You know? So yeah. maybe it's, it's, it's so that I can have those types of experiences. Maybe I want to do all of my, uh, lifting and walking so that I can, I can go in and maybe swim. You know, I, I don't think I've swam in seven or eight years because I'd probably just sink. Right. So oh. it, it's things like that where it's, I want to do it so I can have experiences, not because I want to run just because I can, so I can say to everyone, I can run. It's, it's so that if, you know, if Caroline and I want to go hike, Sure, let's go hike, you know? Yeah, I'm surprised you haven't swam. I would have thought water therapy would have been a thing. <laughs> oh, it, oh, yeah. So it, it is. And water therapy was a big part of my recovery. Okay. The first time I walked was in the pool because of the... the weightlessness. Yeah, the yeah. weightlessness of it. Um, but it, it wasn't like throw you into the 10-foot pool, right? Yeah, yeah. It was just like, we have a five-foot pool here, six-foot pool here, and we're going to, you know, walk. And, um, you know, even a few years ago, I was doing... Uh, like warm water therapy where they have the treadmill and the therapist would like help me run in there. So it was pretty cool. You know, it is pretty cool, but it's not like I'm going into a lake, you know, I just like swimming. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, maybe eventually. Maybe. Yeah. Have you got a basketball out yet? So I have, but it's, it's not really a desire of mine. Okay. You would, you would have thought that, okay, like, you know, he, maybe you don't, but no, maybe I, I, was, I assumed like you, you know, still want it. You still, still want that. to. Yeah. I thought, yeah, you no, it, it, it's fallen away as, so, so here's an important part of this progression. So over time, as I 
you know, and let me let me just let me tell a quick a quick story or tangent, right? So up until 2019 at that point, it had been four years of doing really well in therapy, but mentally I was still in the same place as that kid who sat in the driveway. Okay. Where I don't want to do anything. I'm too nervous to do anything. I'm just gonna kind of play it safe, sit at home, and not really do a whole lot. Fast forward to 2019, I meet Caroline and she kind of uh, really just obliterates all of those insecurities. So let's, let's, let's roll through those. So when I met her, I did not want to use my scooter. I did not want anyone to see my leg braces. I did not, so I would wear pants in the summer when it's 95 degrees, I would wear pants so no one would see my braces. I would not use my scooter, uh, which meant I was really fatigued just walking a couple blocks. Yeah, I wasn't using any accommodations because I felt it made me look weak. And when I'm trying to date someone, I don't wanna look you know, weak. So she comes along um, and essentially she questions all of these things. Um, Where did you meet? So we met on online. We both go to the same school. Okay. Or I, I'm, I graduated, but we still go, we go to the same school. Um, you know, I was nervous. She would be like, "Look at my hands, weird," and all of these things. And then she just, she didn't care. Did, did you know each other beforehand, though? Even? No, okay. no, no. So, you know, some of these insecurities that I had, she either like, like she was neutral about, or she was like, "Oh, I really like the way that." You know, I like the way that your hands are because they give nice back scratches and stuff like that. So she, well, I have a list of insecurities here. She just like destroys it. Okay. So um, at that point, I'm a neuro major at, at Hopkins, right? So like, I don't care, you know, it, it is what it is. But like, I supposedly it's one of the, the better schools for studying neuroscience. I'm going to become a neurologist because I'm going to cure paralysis. And the reason I'm going to cure paralysis is because I'm so unhappy yeah. and discontent that if I can just cure it. I mean, you've answered the question I was going to put to you. Like, oh yeah. Yeah. So essentially I am going to, instead of just mentally recovering, I'm going to cure paralysis. And then when I can run around and swim, then hell yeah, I'm gonna be, I'll, I'm, I'm gonna go play basketball again. I'm gonna be just fine, right? But then in, come, you know, in comes this, this girl and we have this list of insecurities she blows out of the water. And then I'm like, oh, you know, we, she's like, let's go do this. Let's go do that. Let's go to DC. Let's go to New York. Let's go to Philadelphia. We start doing all of these things. I'm no longer sitting at home. I'm living life. So I no longer really have these insecurities so I grow in my self-confidence and my self-worth, and we're also doing things. Huh, why do I need to do neuroscience? I don't like neuroscience. <laughs> I really don't like, yeah, I like talking to you about some of yeah. these things, but that's not what I'm doing in, in school, right? In school, I'm like, okay, dopamine B turns into dopamine A when it meets this factor. And I'm like, I, I don't care. I, I couldn't care less, right? It's not this high level, like, let's have a nice chat about it. So I didn't really like that. I'm like, oh, I'm actually kind of miserable in this like neuroscience thing. And that allows me to like, what am I actually interested in? And that's how we, that's how I, I ruled into Bitcoin. I think right? that's the biggest intro to Bitcoin we've ever done. Like, yeah. if it, like what's your Bitcoin? How, how long will we be going? Uh, an hour 20. Holy fuck. Jeez. Yeah, that's funny. Cause like, uh, 
Uh, most of our shows about an hour to an hour and a half, hour yeah. 15. Uh, I usually look to Danny to get a nod, <laughs> give me the time. And it's usually about an hour. Uh, and we don't, I haven't even looked. Um, okay, so, so, Ca- so Caroline stopped you curing. Uh, she did. You can thank everyone. Yeah. Everyone in the world can um, thank her for that. Uh, okay, so because that was the question I was going to ask. Like, like part of me was thinking, uh, okay, you study neuroscience. Uh, like the expectation was you want to understand what's happened to you. Yeah. And like maybe this has become your mission. Um, but actually it doesn't feel like that anymore. It feels yeah. like maybe that was a mask. It was a coping mechanism. Yeah, yeah. It was, I'm going to figure this out. Yeah. I'm good. What I would do as a kid is, or I would not a kid, I, you know, a couple years after, a 16, 17 year old, I would like read academic research papers on the spinal cord, or I would take neuroscience online courses from like YouTube, just because like I would, I would rather try to like, and I didn't, I, I didn't really enjoy it. I was just like, I kind of felt like forced to do it. And at the same time, I was being reinforced by others like, oh, that's a really good mission, Kale. Like, you're going to cure paralysis. So I was like, okay, yeah, sure. Like, I'll, I'll use this as my, everything happened to me because I'm going to go cure paralysis. But the only reason I wanted to do that was because of my discontent. And once that discontent fell away, I was like, oh, you know, I'm not really interested in that. What am I interested in? And then, you know, somehow, you know, that did lead me, lead me here. Uh to Bitcoin and from Bitcoin, it's like, oh, you know, I really like this monetary theory of this Austrian stuff. I really like this like libertarian angle on, you know, politics and viewpoint of the world. I like this meat side of, uh, you know, being carnivore. I was like, what is this Jimmy Song and uh, Robert Breedlove? What are they doing? Like, why are they eating meat? They're just weirdos, right? <laughs> and then I was like, oh, I started eating meat. And it was it was great, and I felt better, and I was I was, you know, doing better in my therapy and at at home. So, you know, it, that's that's kind of how I I got here. It was as soon as I could, you know, work through my feelings of my injury, which Caroline helped. Once I worked through those feelings, then I could ask myself, what do I what am I really interested in? Yeah. And I'll tell you, it feels much better, you know, talking to you right now, or you know, reading articles or watching different podcasts and learning about this space than it was really trying to drill, you know, into a subject that really I was only there out of coping. This show is brought to you by Fidelity Investments. Now, one of the most regular emails I receive is people asking how to break into the industry and Fidelity Investments reach out to me as they are looking to recruit hundreds of digitally native associates to their team to help shape the future of money. Now, Fidelity Investments is a diversified financial services provider with more than $7.2 trillion in client assets under administration and over 1.3 million trades each day. And they have also been pioneers in the Bitcoin mining and asset management space. Now, they started in Bitcoin back in 2014 when they entered the mining space and have continued to grow their team and services ever since. And their in-house fintech incubator is where the teams come up with innovative solutions to bridge the worlds of traditional finance and decentralization. Now, you have the chance to join them and directly impact how they deliver financial services to their customers. And they provide the resources, training, and development to make you successful in this emerging industry. Now, if you want to learn more about this, then please head over to crypto.fidelitycareers.com. That is crypto.fidelitycareers.com. 
Next up is my new sponsor, Wasabi, who I will now be using to make sure I keep my Bitcoin private. With the release of Wasabi 2.0, privacy is now effortless as a wallet has introduced privacy by default. Now, rather than having to choose to coin join, this can be done automatically, so you just have to receive your Bitcoin, wait for the coin join, and then you can spend freely. All the magic happens automatically in the background, which is a massive UX improvement, which you know, that's always something I care about. Now, you do get additional privacy through Tor integration into Wasabi, so you don't leak your IP address. There is also no more minimum denomination, so you can coin join any amount, and there is no change, so any amount you receive from a coin join is private. Now, privacy is something I am definitely taking more seriously, and with the recently released Wasabi 2.0, this becomes so much easier. Now, if you do want to find out more, please head over to wasabiwallet.io, which is W-A-S-A-B-I-W-A-L-L-E-T dot I-O. Also, today we have Gemini, who I am using exclusively for buying and selling Bitcoin, but whilst we're at the bottom of a bear market, I'm only buying. We're hodlers, right? We hodl through this. Now, I have been using the Gemini app for buying the dips all through this, and I've also set up my DCA with twice monthly buys of Bitcoin. Both the app and the website make buying and selling Bitcoin super easy, and Gemini have invested in building leading industry security since day one. Gemini are also running a special offer for listeners of what Bitcoin did. All you need to do is head over to gemini.com forward slash WBD, and new customers will get $20 in Bitcoin when they trade over $100 or more on Gemini. Now, if you want to find out more, please head over to gemini.com forward slash WBD. That is G-E-M-I-N-I.com forward slash WBD. Sometimes like we build up these coping mechanisms and they just bridge us from one place to the next. Yeah. Like if you hadn't have done that course, you wouldn't have met Caroline? No. Yeah. I wouldn't have exactly. because I wouldn't have gone to Hopkins. Yeah. And so there's these, these like bridges in life. Uh if you like I've had a coping mechanism in my life where it was cocaine, and that was like a terrible coping mechanism yeah. for dealing with divorce. Like it's it's a bad one. It's a drug that could have killed me, right? Yeah. But sometimes you just find them and they just bridge you from one part of the life to the next and you know, I'd, I'd find it hard to judge. I just, it is what it is. Yeah. You, you did it. You know, you, it's, I don't think it's surprising that somebody with a spinal injury goes and studies neuroscience. Yeah. I can imagine it's quite common that people with any kind of injury as a kid go and study that. Yeah. I imagine it's quite common. It is. It, you know, and I, I think some people, they really want to do it though. Before my injury, like, I'm I'm scared of needles. I'm scared of blood. Well, what did you, you know? want to do before that? Before Apart, outside of the basketball, like what did you think you would want to do? I was like, uh, so when I was in middle school, I won the science fair several times with my renewable energy wind turbines. Yeah, it's not so be I was gonna be a I was gonna be a, a wind turbine renewable and energy engineer. That's what I was gonna be. It's funny the little parts of this story. It is because yeah. because now that's such a big that's a big that's a contentious debate contentious in this space. Yeah. So how did you uh, discover the Bitcoin thing? I discovered Bitcoin obviously in the run up of 2020. Okay, and uh, I was watching a lot of CNBC. You know our good folks over there. Yeah, yeah. You know oh you know whatever. Uh, but I, I heard about it. I actually heard about it in high school, probably in the 2017 run up. But I. I had no idea what I was even doing then. So this 2020, I was more primed because at that point I was working a campus job. I was investing in, you know, stocks because I'm like, I'm a stock picker. You know, I've all done that. Look at this, like this, look at this uh, 
therapy company. Look at this uh, neuro company. I'm really going to make a lot of money here. So uh, I was predisposed to Bitcoin at that point because I had a $100 feeder. Like, I'm like, all right, you know, I'm going to put this $10 in this Apple stock, you know. And the 2020 run up, I, I started looking into it. And of course, you know, I, I shit coined for a long time. You know, a year. we all had our, we all have yeah. our time. <laughs> yeah, because I was it was really you know, it was really interesting. You know, the whole space was really interesting. But you know, when you first come into it, you're not sure who who's the signal and who's who's the grifters. You you just don't know, and especially in those bull cycles. You know, I obviously hadn't been in one before, but in those bull cycles, you don't know who who's just who's shitting to your face, right? Yeah. Essentially, so. Um, I got into, um, obviously I knew Bitcoin was like, it was, the Bitcoin was going to be the main, you know, main asset that I wanted to investigate. And thankfully I, you know, I did dive into that. I found your podcast. I, you know, I found Lynn's work. I found, you know, Preston's podcast, all of these different places that till this day are still signal for me. So luckily I found those, but I still like, I, um, I got into, I was going to, my goal was going to be to become like an Ethereum engineer. Okay. I was going to build something on Ethereum. And I, I also do have, um, I think it's still on, um, what's that NFT marketplace? Like that really Open big C? OpenSea. Yeah. I have like five NFTs. You have? I've never. Uh, Not well, that I bought, that I made. Only, I've uh, I've been given an NFT, haven't I? A Bitcoin NFT. Yeah, I've yeah. still never seen or accessed it. Uh, Have you still I, got the Open Dime? I, I think it's over there. Um, I don't I don't even know what the fuck to do with the Open Dime. And I bought my son a T-shirt for Christmas that came with an NFT. I didn't know it did, but I I still don't understand them. Yeah, but anyway, I have five or six. But you, it, what's so, the floor price of them? Selling zero. I, I don't even know the lowest it could be. It's they've never been bought or traded. But so actually, that that NFT collection is called Disabled Punks. And what I was trying to do with that was, I, my goal was to create all of these like they were actually really cool designs. I made them out of like pixel art, and they're like all these different people who have disabilities. Like one girl was like she was blind and she has a seeing eye dog. So it's this pixelated girl with like a white dog. And for each one, I wrote a story about, about this girl with the seeing eye dog. And my goal was like, obviously to like trade it and get money, but also like someone could buy a, oh, there it is. There it is. Yeah. Look at that. Oh my God. Oh, there's a girl with the seeing eye dog. (laughs) Disabled punk number two. Did you sell any of them? No. The, the, The strange thing is it sounds like the kind of thing that could have blown up. It could have. Yeah. Yeah, but each one has a story. So if you click on it, like it will say um, the description. Yeah. Hold on. Disabled Punk uh, is a blind teenager who uses a CNI dog, Benji, to independently move from place to place. As a child, the congenital... Essentially like blind from birth. Oh, congenitally blind teen... God, how dumb do I sound? Teen mainly relied on her friends and family to navigate her environment. However, one year ago, she adopted Benji. Now... A nearly three-year-old white poodle to increase her confidence and independence on when on the move. What I can't tell with this because, like, spending a bit of time with you, I can't tell if that's a nice story or like there's a little bit tongue in cheek. No, there. The, these were all supposed to be like disability empowerment. Oh, so really? Each one was supposed to be like this girl. So that first one, the seeing eye, the the girl with the seeing eye eye dog. She she relied on her friends and family 
but then she increased her independence by getting a seeing eye dog. So it was supposed to be like, this is disability empowerment. Someone who was blind or maybe related to the story would buy it and hold on to it because they felt it represented them. And then I would also make money. I bet you sell one now. Yeah. Please don't buy it. <laughs> I have no idea what's even, I don't even know how this works. Danny, do you know what I mean by like, it feels like no sense of humor now. It feels like an edge to that. <laughs> I don't know. Not that you're like taking the piss out of people, but it's like, because you've been through something, you can do this. Yeah. But no, they're just like deadly serious. Who's this guy? This guy is, oh, this was an older man. He fractured his hip and his, his gait or his walking was unstable following the, the surgery. So he uses his cane and he didn't want others to pity him. So he was initially against the cane, but now he's come to appreciate the freedom and stability the cane provides. So all of these have a- They've all got a little bit of you in them. Yeah, they all are, the goal of all of them is this person like use the tools at their disposal in order to live their life more. Yeah. So through each of these, I hate that they're NFTs because I think the idea is actually- they're, they're, These are books, little, little yeah, books. Yeah, these are all little like stories, right? Yeah. But they're all put like the last story, you know, not to toot my own horn, but it's, it's, really, it's, it's really nice. He relies on the cane to get around the house, grow, grow, go grocery shopping, and most importantly, spend time with his granddaughter. Yeah. They feel like uh, little kids books. Yeah. Yeah. I bet they, how much are they, Danny? I don't know how you even know. I don't even know how to, zero, zero total volume. I, I think one owner is I you? think number four, number four is me. I made number four after me. Make offer. Oh, so to, I see, I don't know how this shit works. I bet, they, I bet these all sell now. Yeah, I think so. I might sell them and resell them. <laughs> uh, I just, wouldn't it be cool though, if we had like, like this feel like I just I hate that the open sea and Ethereum and Polygon it all feels like such like grifts now. Yeah. I wish I could do something like this because I had a really fun time making these and I felt like they were really empowering, you know. And obviously, like my whole goal is like I would love to do I would love to tell my story for a living and make things like this, but this just feels grifty. It feels like it feels like I'm trying to get some ETH for like an art thing. And yeah. I don't like that. Well, so like I say, it felt like, I mean, I've only read two of them, but they felt like parts of your story. Like Benji was basically your friend. Yeah. You've got the old guy who doesn't want the pity. There's like things you've brought up, um, but uh, they just feel like little kids books. Yeah. That's what they feel like. And that's not grifty. Uh, have you thought of tr trying a kid's book? A kid's book or um, I've, I've thought about writing my whole story. Yeah. Um, I, I realized I haven't done that because I'm still working through parts of it. Um, and I need, you know, the help of others to help me piece some of those things together. But I think a kid's book would be, would be interesting. Yeah. I mean, I guess if like, if, if you want to write, like, there's a bit of time to go on your story yet. Yeah. Yeah. So I just think they said like, as somebody who has kids and who's been through story time, there's yeah. certain like stories you go through, you have a character and then they tell a different story and they're always in a set. There's always a series. Yeah. Like uh, there's these certain books when they're so little, like they have different uh, uh, textures for you to fill as right. you go through. And I think it's like, there's one, there's a dog, one, there's a cat and he catches it. Like, you know, and as they get older, there's different ones. Um, it just feels like one of those uh, as a series. Yeah. Maybe I'll do, I think that's a good idea. 
Do it. Because, yeah, each of those, because I think, I mean, that's what I want to do, right? I want, I want people who have disabilities to be like, to feel empowered, to go and live their lives, be productive, spend time with family, go out. I don't want them to be like how I was or just sat in my basement by myself because that's, that's no way to live. And like, there's no reason to do that. There's, there's accommodations out there that you could more easily go out and you can build your social network and social support to do these things. I think it would be very hard to go through that experience and not go through that period though. Like it, it, you yeah. have to be a strong fucker to get through it all. Yeah. And I'm, I'm glad I'm on the other side of that, yeah. but, um, but yeah, but, but now it's, it's, I, I'm, I'm really into the, um, really like, you know, for me, I'm now most interested in this, this, this Bitcoin rabbit hole and all of these different tangents that I've found because there, there's not just, there's not just, you know, not, Bitcoiners aren't a monolith, right? There are people who, you know, there are people like Matt O'Dell on the tech side, but there's people like Texas Slim who just like, like accepts Bitcoin, but has like Bitcoin principles of like, uh, proof of work from a standpoint of we're going to raise cattle as ethically and as, you know, as good for the people who are going to eat it, as good for the environment as possible. That's proof of work. That's taking ideas from Bitcoin and applying it to other spaces. It's like our bacon today. Yeah. What so bacon did you get? We went to the supermarket to get some stuff, right? Amer uh oh. Um, yeah. American supermarkets are full of shit. Yeah. Like uh, we have shit in ours. But like, get away from the fruit and veg, and there's stuff that shouldn't be shit that's full of shit. So we ended up buying the what the no hormone, no hormone, no antibiotic bacon. Yeah, yeah no. Yeah. Like, and Danny was like, "If you're in the UK, you don't have those labels because you just assume it's not got that yeah. stuff in." Or maybe I'm wrong. Maybe yeah, but it maybe, isn't. Yeah, but like, there's so much shit on the shelves here. Everything looks like it's it's not really, it's kind of got a little bit of food in and a bunch of other shit that they yeah. can legally get away with. And it doesn't matter whether it's like, like frozen waffles or tin concentrated uh, orange juice or like weird ice cream. Like it's just shit everywhere and it's fucking expensive. Here. Yes. Like a pack of mushrooms was five bucks. Yeah. That, that in the UK would be like one pound 50, like two bucks. Yeah. It's like really expensive, but there's a lot of shit there as well. And, yeah. and, and that, that to us was an eye opener. And like, and I, you know, I think we have better uh, food in our general supermarkets in the UK at a better price than here. But I, but I've also noticed like this push to make your, grow your own food here a bit more, and I get it because I think it's shit here. Yeah, and I don't mean that disrespectfully to Americans. I just think, I just think the corporate America, the food side of corporate America, will just sell you any bollocks. Yeah, and if you look at if you go and you pick up one package from one part of the store and you pick up a package from another part of the store, 90% of the ingredients are gonna be exactly the same. So really you're just eating the same ingredients, just packaged differently. One has a, you know, a, a, a mom in an apron looking out onto a field, and the other one has like, I don't know, uh, another beautiful image. And you think you're eating two different things, but really all you're eating is like high fructose corn syrup, soybean oil, soy lechon, and that's about it. Preservatives. Yeah. And I've seen that. Have you seen that wheel where it's all the companies 
But all the, all the yes. and it's like five companies dominate. Yeah, like all the different products. Yeah, have you seen that? I, I'm not. I've seen similar stuff. Yeah, there, it's like it's not good. No, I, I I haven't been to the grocery store. Um, you know, we Caroline and I we rarely go. Uh, I think the only time we need something from the grocery store is if we need like um, a granola bar or something that like we we don't want to make a meal. We're not perfect. We don't want to make a meal. Then you know maybe we need something to tie us over until lunch. We'll get like as best of a bar as possible. But the rest of our items, I have found a way to source from locally and from you know farmers and ranchers that I trust. So back home, I have two farmers, one that I get all of my beef, steak, you know, eggs from, and the other one that I get all of my dairy from. So all of my cheeses, all of my milks, you know, you name it, everything comes, honey, it comes from him. And then um, I'm from Iowa. So uh, there's, there's this farm out there, Acorn Bluffs, and they have um, this really good pork. And I, and I order from them to send me like, uh, their sausages, their bacon, you know, their pork chops. So like I'm set from a, from a nutrition standpoint and Caroline and I have both moved more toward like, we want to eat food where the only ingredient is the food. What is steak? Steak. What is broccoli? Broccoli. What is, what is milk? Milk. If you go into the store, like the, the last thing I want to buy is something where there's 20 ingredients and each ingredient has five ingredients. Yeah. Right. So you're really eating like a hundred different things. You don't know what you're eating. You don't know how it was processed. So we're, we've really like, you know, we've created our own supply chains Nice. and eventually I'm going to press them on accepting Bitcoin because I think it will be, you know, it's not just because I'm a Bitcoiner, I want them to accept Bitcoin, but I think it will benefit their business because right now all of these places, they have that two to 3% charge from credit card companies on all of their, you know, all of their orders, which eat into their margins. Sure. But I think, I think I always struggle with that one because it's like, yeah, they have that two to 3%, but then like, are you going to sell the Bitcoin where you've got a charge on the exchange? If you're going to hold it, what if the price drops? I think there's a bigger role in this with trying to get them to accept Bitcoin is it advertises them to Bitcoins, Bitcoiners, but you start to create this kind of network of companies and people who think of it similarly. Like I probably slightly worse food than you, but like I'm, I'm aware of what I'm eating more and more because of the Bitcoin community. Yes. Because I've heard people talk about, like I'm not a carnivore, but I eat more steak because I heard about that and I've done my research. I've just become more aware of like the lifestyle choices from the community. So I, I think it's more about this kind of, the, the really interesting thing for me about, well, one of the really interesting things for me about Bitcoin is, is not the monetary side. It is the uh, asymmetric topics which you learn about that are, are about living, like it's the um, time preference stuff. Yes. Like make better choices, eat better food, exercise better, spend time with your family, educate people on the right stuff. It's all that stuff that comes together. All of the principles. All the principles. And we don't have to share them all. Like, but but you can create that community around that. And I, I, that's what I find super interesting. It's kind of like why I wanted to get you on here. It's like, okay, I could have seen any tweet thread from any, you know, one who's been through a situation come on. But it's like, okay, but Kel's a Bitcoiner. I want to hear what a Bitcoiner has been through with this. 
And yeah. like, what does that mean and what comes next? Which, out of interest, what does come next? Like, what, are you trying to work? In, are you working now or are you still studying? Yeah, I'm working. In Bitcoin? Well, one day. One day. Yeah. Right now I'm doing commodities trading operations at an investment bank. Yeah. So it's, um, you know. So you are a trader. I'm not, well, I, I assist traders, okay. really. Um, it would be not, there are, you know, it would be nice to be uh, and eventually be a trader. I think that would be really interesting. Right. Right now it's, it's um, I do enjoy what I, I, I do because it's a lot of problem solving. Essentially we support commodities traders. So people who trade power or they trade oil or they trade corn in, you know, all throughout North America. And it's essentially making sure that everything is booked properly and our records reflect the counterparties and the exchanges. And a lot of time, like shit goes sideways and we have to figure out what goes wrong. But I, I, I do enjoy this space because I feel like there is a connection to the mining yeah. space because, it, you know, mining is made up a bunch of, you know, it's mining is all power markets. It's getting the cheapest electricity. So I'm learning a lot about power markets, electricity, you know, all of these different things that I think eventually will allow me to be a, you know, a, a, an applicant considered for some of these Bitcoin roles um, or, you know, a role at a Bitcoin company. I think that would be really cool because I think the, the thing that's missing for me is I want to work for someone who maybe more aligns with my, my principles or what the space has taught me. Um, I think that would be really interesting. And have you mixed much in the space? Have you been to many events? Are you coming to Bitcoin 2023? I, I don't have any plans, but maybe I should. Maybe you should. But. I think I need to, I mean, I I stay in my, I, I think I need to do a little more, you know, not, you know, not, my, my whole thing is anything I do, I don't want it to be ingenuine, right? I don't want to go to something with a thought in my mind of I'm going to try to, get something from this person. I want it to be genuine connections. Yeah. And if it leads to something great, but if not, I have a friend at the end. Yeah. Right. So, but it, I think it would be cool to go to, you know, I think what's lacking in Baltimore right now is we don't have meetups as what? much and I need to make one. Yeah, dude. Right. Like, I need on. to make one. We I know one, I'm lacking. I'm we lacking. got one in Bedford now. No, I know. You uh, guys have one, but. Yeah, you should come to the conference. Just come hang out anyway, just because it's cool. We'll be there. Um, you know when it is? Uh, May. I think May 18th. Yeah. It's could, not that could far. Be wrong on the Miami? Yeah. 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 You should come down to it. I think you'd enjoy it. Um, you will You will get a bunch of people get in touch after doing this. It always happens. Um, uh, just, I don't know, want to speak to you and yeah. just say enjoyed the show, didn't, maybe didn't enjoy it, that'd be weird. <laughs> but like you will get people get in yeah. touch with you uh, from this. Uh, just to close that, like how, how do you reflect on the last, it's what, seven, seven and a half years? Like how do you reflect on it all now? I look at it now as, well, one, the greatest problem solving exercise I'll probably ever have to do in my life where I was given a situation and my goal was to, do as best I could with that situation. And the best I could at the beginning looks a lot differently than as it does now. You know, meaning in the beginning, I thought the best that I could was walking, running, playing basketball. Now it's doing everything I can to live a fulfilling life, you know, 
work at a job that I find fulfilling, build a family, build wealth that I can that I can pass on, l- live by the principles that I've learned from this space of, you know, the proof of work is working incredibly hard, being very detailed, but also it's a community. So it's really supporting others. You see a Bitcoiner who's who's doing something, they have those same principles and values, it's supporting them. So it's it's it was the greatest problem solving exercise I've I've been through. I've also learned that when we go through challenges, we need we need support and a range of support. My parents did so much for me. I needed I needed more people than just them. I couldn't rely exclusively on them. You know, Caroline's helped me in ways that my parents couldn't help me. My parents helped me in ways that other people haven't been able to help me. You need a community and a tribe if you're working through something that is, you know, tough or an incredibly dense situation. And then I think, you know, the the last part, what I completely didn't take into account or ignored is when I first started, you know, trying to recover, I thought it was an only I thought it was only a physical game. As long as I can recover everything as much as possible, get back to running, walking, I will be happy. Then I will be happy. I did not think I was in, you know, I didn't really appreciate that my happiness was in my control then. I didn't need to wait, you know, 15 years until I could maybe jump or run. I could be happy then. I could figure out a way to go do things that I wanted to do. And I think that's the message I, I want to push. Like having a disability is not the end. It's, you know, you, it's not the end of your life. It may be the end of way, certain ways you used to do things. You know, maybe you're not going to write with your right hand anymore. Maybe you're going to write with your left hand. You know, you're going to do things differently and you're going to learn what you need to do, but you need to continue living. You need to find ways New new hobbies, maybe. Maybe you'll continue your old hobbies. Maybe you liked reading before. You'll continue reading now. But if you maybe if you had really physical activities before and you don't want to do those anymore, then you need to really reflect and figure out what you like. And that will come with time. You know, I didn't just find Bitcoin in 2015. That would be nice. I would have told my family to buy a shit ton and then it would have been, you know, <laughs> yeah. done, you know? I could, be everyone could be wealthy in my family, but that didn't happen. It took several years, but once that did happen, like now, now I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm ready to go. I want to capitalize on all these, you know, opportunities, learn from all these smart people, get in, get in contact and talk to people like you. So I think that's, that's how I reflect on it all. Um, and I'm excited moving forward. Excellent. And, uh, if people want to follow you, get in touch. Check out Twitter. your story. Twitter. Yep, Twitter, at Kel Hyder. Okay, well, we will put that in the show notes. Dude, it's great to meet you. Yeah, uh, it's great to meet you. I'm uh, really glad you came in. We did this. Um, yeah, I mean, it's like everything I expected. Um, I I kind of got a feel from you from your thread. Um, and uh, I didn't I didn't see you as as competitive as you are, but like <laughs> that's probably a good thing. Uh, yeah, thanks, man. I appreciate you coming in. If I asked any dumb questions, I apologize, but like that's what I'm known for. And I and I'm still working <laughs> through, you know, a lot of things. So if if we talked again in, you know, two three years, I'll have I'll, I'll have more time to reflect on some of those. You know, I think having this conversation, Caroline and I are going to talk after. She'll be like that inspiration part. You really need to work through and how you want. Like, what are your actual thoughts on that? Because she can do she can she can lay that out 
much more succinctly than I can. But me being in this, you know, in this spot, I sometimes I do feel like, okay, I've been through something that was inspired, that could inspire someone. So I could see that, right? Yeah. There are still things like that, that I need to really understand for my own self. But then when I'm trying to talk, I can more clearly, you know, express those feelings to other people. Um, but that's just, that's just life. We all, yeah. ref- I mean, Caroline will reflect on her own things in her life. Danny does, I do. I mean, I'll reflect on this show. I like, what did I do? What could I, that's, that's just, that's, I think what we, that's what we all should do. Maybe not everyone does, but we all do that. But um, yeah, look, it's great to meet you. Yeah. Uh, you're a friend of the show. Anything you need, you just reach out to me or Danny. Um, and yeah, it'd be great to do this again sometime. Awesome. See where you are in a year or so. Maybe yep. you're maybe working at a Bitcoin company. I hope. <laughs> should, we, should we give a shout out to mom and dad? Yes, let's shout out mom and dad. They're definitely going to watch this. They, I, you know, I don't give them, I, I can never give them enough credit. You know, my mom stopped her entire life to be there for me that first six months to two years. And my dad did everything he could to continue, you know, continue the financial strength of our family. Because, you know, all of that traveling, all of those expenses, I'm sure weren't entirely covered by insurance, right? There were things that I'm sure they had conversations behind closed doors where they're like, how are we going to do this? How are we going to make sure Adam, it, my younger brother, how are we going to make sure he's still okay and, you know, can have some sense of normalcy, right? They, they had to be, I was going through, you know, what I was going through, but they had to make sure that we remained intact, you know, emotionally and financially. And, you know, it's huge props to them. And, you know, the, the main thing I learned from them is the importance of being an advocate. They went to battle, you know, when, when there was a conversation they had with my doctor in the very beginning where my doctor told them, just them, that I was not going to, you know, walk or progress as much as what they thought. And because of that, he was like, okay, like we can do, maybe we could do this infusion. Maybe we don't need to work and do as much extensive therapy because this I've seen this before. It doesn't really look like something your son will be able to recover very much from. And, you know, they're essentially like, hell no, we're going to do, you know, what we need to do here um, to give Kale the best opportunity to have more function, right? They were, I was, I was a kid. It was, I, I could do as much as I could, but it was on them to make sure that, you know, everything was, as okay as possible. And I think they did a remarkable job. Amazing. Okay, man. Well, listen, like I say, uh, stay in touch. Anything yep. you need, reach out to us and we'll see you when we see you. I guess yeah. maybe at Bitcoin 2023, maybe in a year on the show, whatever, man. Awesome. But yeah, good luck with everything and appreciate you coming on. All right. Thanks, Peter. All right. What did you think of that? What do you think about deviating from the normal kind of Bitcoin show and just getting into someone's story? I think Kale's story was just super interesting. It was so unique to see a young person put through such a challenging situation, you know, especially as he was a young basketball player, had high aspirations for what he could do with basketball, and then one day woke up and, you know, 24 hours later, he was uh, unable to move anything from the neck down. Yeah, it was a cool story. Look, I don't want to be patronizing or condescending to Kale, but he is a, just a fucking cool guy. Uh, it was great to hang out with him, meet with him, and talk about his story, and also just talk about Bitcoin. Uh, Kel, you're a friend now, so hopefully uh, you stay in touch and next time we make a podcast, it'll be 
a bit about Bitcoin and what you're doing in that area. And listen, anyone got any questions about this or anything else, please do reach out to me. My email address, hello at whatbitcoindid.com. Do go and check out the tweet thread that Kel put together about his story. It's uh, fascinating. We've put that in the show notes. All right, apart from that, have a great weekend and I will see you all next week. <laughs>